Josh, thanks for the invitation, and thank you, Midtown Church, for hosting me this morning on what is a really fun day. One year, even uh, persevering through a pandemic, is nothing to shake your, shake your fist at. So praise God for his work, amen? It's sustaining and enduring grace, and we're excited at Harvest to have the opportunity to plant churches. Uh, I get particularly blessed to be a running point on our church plant committee, and so to visit in person, to see what the Lord has done, is doing, and then the anticipation of what he is yet to do is really fun and a blessing and encouragement to us at Harvest as well. So I'm excited to return tomorrow morning with a fun, encouraging report uh, that the gospel is going forth here at Midtown Baptist Church. And for each of you, for the singing, for the prayers, thank you for blessing me this morning. First Peter is where we'll be. We'll be in chapter 1, and we'll be going verses 6 through 9 this morning. Uh, We'll walk through those uh, fairly methodically, but before we get there, as you haven't been in a series of 1 Peter, I'll do a little bit quickly, but background work, because if you'll notice in verse 6, and we'll stand to read in a moment, but he says, in this you rejoice. And so verses 6 through 9, that rejoicing is really framed by what he said in 3, 4, and So a quick visit to 3, 4, and 5 will actually enhance our ability to understand and and step into what Peter is writing to us here in chapter 1 of this great New Testament letter. That said, if you're able, I do invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 through 9, these are the very words of God. In this you rejoice. Though now, for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. As First Peter chapter 1, verses 6 through 9, the very words of God. Amen. You may be seated. Father, we do confess publicly that the Bible is from you. It being from you, it is therefore necessarily trustworthy and authoritative. So when we come to Scripture, God, and disagree with what it clearly says, it then makes us wrong. And so we ask that you would shape us, that you would correct us, that you would encourage us. Uh, Your Bible makes some promises to us. Uh, One is that uh, via your spirit that your word does not return void. And so we ask that this morning that it would move in power, that it would not simply be an accumulation of knowledge, but that it really would uh, cut us, that we would bleed out our sins and self-centeredness, God, our perspectives and are not aligned with you and that you would fill those with the truth. God, that we would leave here maybe in some way, by your grace, more conformed to the image of your Son. We ask this in Christ's wonderful name I pray, amen. So in this you rejoice. If you look back at me quickly, he begins after his introduction to verse 3 saying, Blessed the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He says, according to his great mercy, you've caused us to be born again. So Paul says, what should you rejoice in? Well, preeminently, that by God's grace, through his son, he has caused you to be reborn. 
This is Jesus and Nicodemus in John chapter 3. What must I do to enter into the kingdom of heaven? With Nicodemus having this grid of religious activity as his backdrop, Jesus says, you've got to forget all of that. You must be born again. In fact, you must be rebirthed into a brand new family, parented by your heavenly Father. So Peter says, in this you rejoice. In what, Peter, that God, according to his initiative and great mercy, has caused us to be born again. And then he says this, to a living hope. And biblically considered, hope is not something we wish for. It is the reality of what is guaranteed. So here Peter is saying, what is guaranteed for you is alive. It is living. It is enduring. And it is alive. Why? Because look at it. In verse 3, Jesus was resurrected from the dead. Amen? It is the linchpin, not just spiritual, but historical reality of the Christian church that on Easter morning, Jesus walked out of the grave. Literally. Physically. Undeniably. And in 1 Corinthians 15, you would read why Paul says that is so essential. That if we lose the resurrection then the Equality Act does not matter. If Jesus Christ does not raise from the dead, nothing can be oriented in its proper direction. It is the centerpiece of the Christian faith. I remember when my wife and I were living in Austin. I'm going to play with this, by the way. I'm used to the double headset mic, and my ears are huge, which means it's hard to get these over them. So it will loosen throughout this morning. But I remember living in Austin, and my wife and I uh, kind of catalyzed this, more my wife, less me, this uh, progressive dinner on our street. Okay, we had a really fun, diverse, uh, uh, in every way, neighborhood. And we get to the first house, which was drinks and an appetizer, and, and we meet some neighbors. She finds out I'm a pastor, and the first thing she asked me is, well, what do you think about same-sex marriage? First question. To which I responded, that's a really good question. Before we answer that one, let's talk about a better one. Do you think Jesus of Nazareth rose from the dead? If he didn't, if he didn't, who cares what I think about same-sex marriage? If he did, it means something. The resurrection is the key to everything in all of human history. And here Peter says, Jesus is alive, so your hope is alive and it is guaranteed. Verse 4, not only is it guaranteed, what does it guarantee? An inheritance. Something is coming our way. But not only is it coming our way, there's a guarantee because it is imperishable. It's undefiled. It's unfading. And it's kept in heaven for us. So there is the day coming. And Peter says, regardless of your circumstance here, just know the day that is coming is unshakable. Nothing can change it. You can't tarnish it. You can't defile it. It cannot perish. It is waiting on us who, by God's power, are being guarded by faith. You are kept secure by the perfection of Jesus Christ and his covering mercy. So when Peter gets to verse 6, he says, in this you rejoice. Well, what do we rejoice in? Well, God caused us to be born again to a living hope that is enduring and alive because Jesus really did walk out of the grave. He really was resurrected from the dead. Having been resurrected from the dead, he secures an inheritance for us. 
It is the guarantee, and it's waiting on us. That inheritance can never be defiled, can never perish. And Peter says, don't worry if you're going to get there or not. Because those who belong to Christ are guarded by the power of God. So Peter says, rejoice in this. Now he's got to lay that foundation. Because what comes next does not seem very congruent with the loving God that he just preached to us about. In fact, what comes next, for a lot of us, me included, is a little bit short-circuiting. So if you're talking with Peter, if you're on the phone with him, verse 3, verse 4, verse 5, verse 6, this is a great conversation. Verse 7, hang on, Peter. It almost seems like you completely switched. What kind of God are you talking about again? So he's got to get us secure in rejoicing. So here's what he says. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while. If necessary, you've been grieved by various child, trials. Okay, there's, some, there's some, a description of trials that Peter gives us here. Okay, here's the first one. He says, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while. The first one is timing. He says, regardless of what you're going through, right, no matter the difficulty, it may seem like it's a long time. But Peter says, it's just a little while. Now, how can he say that? Or if it's a 15-minute trial, it feels like a little while. If it's 10 years, that does not feel very short. So how can he, with such confidence, frame every single trial in this temporal mindset? Because in Peter, he's juxtaposing, he's overlaying our earthly circumstance on the timeline of eternity. So he says, there's a day coming that is eternal, ongoing, everlasting in the presence of the Lord. And while I do not seek to diminish or minimize anything any of us go through, the reality is, just chronology considered... In light of eternity, it is fleeting in the same way that the Scripture describes our lives, but a mist and a vapor. So consider eternity, Peter says, hey, it's a short time. It's a short time with eternity in view. But here's the next thing that he says, you have been grieved. Grieved. You know what I love about Peter? Is he doesn't just have sort of ivory tower, distant theologian hat on, right? Thus saith the Lord, go and be happy. He's got pastoral hat on, friend hat on. He's saying, hey, I know I just said in light of eternity that it's a little while, but they're still painful. They still create grief. The the idea there to get down to the exactness of the language it is distressing they distress us they disturb they disorient and he says that's real that's true he doesn't want to minimize it and far be it from us to minimize anyone's pain and difficulty okay so in the first it could be easy to read the first part and if someone's going through some difficult and say hey look you know don't you know in light of eternity that this is just a little while Get over it. 
And Peter's saying, no, I'm not saying get over it. I'm saying just keep it in perspective. He says the pain is real. The distress is real. The disturbance is real. And he says they can be various. The actual idea there, if we were to literally translate it, is multicolored. He says these things come in every shape and size. We can be distressed, grieved, and disturbed in millions of different ways. Because post-Genesis 3, nothing in this world, ourselves included, operate according to their pure created intent. So, Peter says, hey, keep perspective. They're a little while. They're still painful. And don't think you can just put them in about three lanes. And as long as you avoid, right, so build your entire life around pain management and disaster avoidance. And Peter's saying, what a wasted life. You can't do it. They're multicolored. They're various. You can't find five trials you want to avoid and then insulate yourself. He says they'll still find you. There's a, there's a well, I hesitate to say great movie. I don't want you to judge me. There is a movie that I enjoy <laughs> called Legends of the Fall. There's a great line in that movie. And that is Anthony Hopkins, uh, Brad Pitt. He moves his uh, family to the wilderness of Wyoming. He loses his wife early on. And he said, I wanted to escape the madness by going over the mountains. And what you find in that movie is madness still finds them. There's no escape. Trial pain, adversity, struggle, unavoidable. So you can't make your life's goal to be insulated from distress. So they're a little while, consider eternity. They're still painful, don't minimize it. By the way, you can't escape them because there's a multitude of ways in which they will come to you. But then there's a whole other part. And right there we're kind of like, okay, I got it. I get that. I can appreciate that. I can approximate that. That comes home to me. But there's a part I skipped where he says there's a fourth reality of trials. Necessary. Now hold on. Peter, you just told me that God saved me. I couldn't do it. He did it. His initiative. He saved me. Caused me to be born again. I've got a living hope. Jesus was risen from the dead. I've got an inheritance. God really does love and care about me. You're telling me that that same God could deem it necessary that I suffer and go through trial. And it's at this point that certainly for our culture, and we don't need to kid ourselves, for many of us Christians that we go, that doesn't add up. But I'm going to kind of factor that. I'm going to compartmentalize that. Because God would never, ever do that. Peter says, your trial and suffering may be necessary. And like a good writer, he then answers the number one question that comes to all of our minds. How could it be necessary? He says, verse 7, I'll tell you. So that, here's his answer. Peter, how could these trials be necessary for me? So that the tested genuineness of your faith... More precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor 
at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So why is your uh, faith necessary to be tested? Peter takes us to an illustration, a word picture that, that his audience would have understand, uh, understood uh, very intuitively. Okay, so he takes it to the process of refining gold. So he's, he's going to say, I'm going to answer your question by way of analogy. So he says, think about gold. Now, some of you have heard this in the past, some of you may be new to you. Uh, but he says, think about gold. The way that gold is purified is it is heated. And the hotter the fire, the more impurities that are in the gold, uh, uh, they, they seep up. They rise to the top. So what they would do is they would heat it and they would heat it and they would heat it. And in heating it, the impurities would come up. And then they'd come in and they'd wipe the impurities off. And what was left behind was a metal that more resembled what it was meant to be. So in gold... You have these impurities mixed with purities. The process of refining it, the whole goal of it was to get the impurities out to leave a more refined metal behind that looked more like it was intended to look. So Peter says this is what happens when we go through trials. Is when the fire gets up hotter and hotter and hotter these things that are mixed in with our faith, right? these sinful patterns, these sinful thoughts, these selfish inclinations, all of these things, all these things that are mixed in, that's what trial and pain and distress reveal. And as those get revealed, there's an opportunity for us to acknowledge them, repent of them, and had the Spirit come in and sweep them away. And what's left behind? A more refined faith that's a little bit more Christ-like, which according to Romans 8, is exactly what we're intended to be. Okay, so my mother-in-law has been in the hospital for a month with COVID. She just got off a ventilator this week. Three and a half weeks on a ventilator we thought she was going to die on Valentine's night. It's obviously for my wife been very traumatic, up and down emotionally. She spoke her first words in a month this week. They finally put a trach in. She could mouth, uh, she could mouth something. Right? She's learning to breathe again. Okay, that's a various multicolored trial, isn't it? It came to us in a way we didn't anticipate. I have prayed for Kim Boyd more in the last four weeks than I have in the previous eight years of marriage. Why? Because the fire got turned up. And when the fire got turned up, it illuminated some things. You know what it illuminated for me? Prayerlessness, lack of concern for others, especially my extended family. In that, we began praying that the Lord would use her illness, whether she survived or not, for the salvation of my wife's family. Prayed for that more in the last four weeks than I have in the previous eight years. So what happens? The fire gets turned up. I start to realize, dadgummit, I don't pray for people. I don't do it. Pray for me. Pray for my kids. 
Mostly that they would obey. <laughs> Pray for my wife. And so I learned through this trial that there's this stuff mixed in with my faith that is prayerlessness. So now that it's revealed, there's an opportunity, there's a decision point. I can continue prayerless lines of living and let the impurity stay mixed in and not look more like I'm intended to look or can invite the Spirit in to repent of that and ask Him to sweep it away and to leave a man behind that looks a little bit more like Christ than maybe he did before. So why does Peter say trials are necessary? For that reason. They are revealing to us. But Mitten, I'll tell you this, and this is fundamentally true. We will not, we will not rejoice in suffering if we don't value what they produce. And if intimacy with Christ is the goal, then we will rejoice at some point regardless of the pain. If intimacy with Christ is of secondary or tertiary or it's a tangential concern for you, right? So if walking with Jesus is more about the here and now, the what he can do for you, the benefits he's going to bring for you, why would you rejoice in pain and suffering those reduce, they minimize, they disrupt the good life. So we will not walk with Peter as he instructs his church to rejoice in suffering and the, the necessary nature of trials. Why? Because they produce godliness and intimacy with God. But if we don't value what they produce, we will not rejoice in what they bring. And I will tell you this, Peter is writing in a time most likely when a guy named Nero ruled the Roman Empire. He burned Christians. Okay, so he's not writing to them in some like peacetime of flourishing for the church. This is real. Family members are being drug out, burned, killed, martyred, executed. He says, Rejoice. Because when the fire gets turned up on your life, and look, you know this. When the fire gets turned up, the impurities start really coming out. And if the Spirit sweeps them away, what's left behind is a person more conformed to what they've always been created to be. So he says that you may, so here's the goal, that you may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He says there's a day coming. And Jesus is going to appear. And we're going to be with him. And here's what's fascinating about this text. You know what he says? In that moment, Jesus will actually praise and honor us. Think about that. The result in praise and glory and honor. Why? Well, contextually here, because you persevered through trial. And he's going to say, bless you. For valuing intimacy with me above the things of this world. And the Son of God, 
will bless us in a great moment when right afterwards we throw our crowns right back down at his feet. Peter says, keep going. For the one day you will look your Savior in the eye. And he will say, I bless you for your perseverance. In fact, so much so that we'll look him in the eye. He talks about that in verse 8. Look at it. Though you have not seen him, where he just told you that you will, but he's saying, I realize you hadn't done it yet. Right, so this part about seeing Jesus doesn't seem so practical. It's, it's kind of way up there in space somewhere. It's hard to grab hold of. But he's saying, look, I promise you it's going to happen. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him. And rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. I think this is Peter, right, in this greatly rejoice, all these earlier truths. Tells him something really difficult. Hey, you're suffering. God may deem it necessary. Here's what he's going to produce. And then he rounds it off with, but I really want to encourage you. Because, Peter says, from what I've seen, you're the exact type of people that he is going to say, I bless you. In fact, I think he's writing this, verse 8, he says, so, you know, though you don't see him, you believe in him. Uh, though you haven't seen him, you love him. I really think, and I know this is conjecture, but I think he is writing to, the, to these believers, dispersed. And he's saying, do you all know what you remind me of? And I sit here about 30 years earlier, I was in a room. About 30 years earlier, I was in a room with a bunch of guys. And we were upstairs, and the doors were locked, and we were afraid. And just then, Jesus appeared. He just appeared. Didn't even unlock the door. He's there. Peter says, when I think about that, I think about y'all. Because Jesus went around that room that night. And we were all excited to see him. And we were just blessing his name and praising him. We couldn't believe there's Jesus. Except my buddy Thomas was kind of skeptical. In fact, my buddy Thomas walked over to him. He said, I can't believe in you unless you show. I got I to gotta see where the nails went in your hands. I got to see where the spear went in your side. I got to see the nail. Show me your feet, your hands, and your side, and I'm going to believe. She says, okay. Okay, look. Here they are, Thomas. Thomas says, my Lord and my God. And then Jesus says, Peter said, I'll never forget this. Jesus said, Thomas, you see me and believe. But blessed are those who do not see, but believe. And Peter's writing to this church, and I really think he's saying, hey guys, Jesus had you on his mind 30 years ago when he was talking to Thomas. And 30 years ago, he blessed you. And I'm just reminding you that blessed are those who believe him and love him who have yet to lay eyes on him. And when I read that and think through that, I am so, I, I am inspired by the thoughtfulness of Christ via his word. To, in 2021, Peter could say, when I write and you read this, Midtown, 2,000 years ago, 
in a locked room when Jesus said, blessed are those who do not see but still believe, you are on his mind. And when he said, you love me, though you have not seen me, you are on his mind. And he says, for that simple act, I bless you. I bless you. And then Peter says, when it's all said and done, when this life is passed, when the trials are over, he says, you will obtain the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. That idea is, it's, it's just simply this. When everything's finally brought to completion, we will step into things like they were always meant to be. There will be no more mixing together. There will be no more impurity mixed with our faith. There will be no more sin and violence and, and uh, uh, you know, government that uh, bows to the will of sinful man on both sides of the aisle, whatever it is. Peter says, that's going away. There'll be no more Nero. There'll be no more death. He says, one day you will achieve the outcome of this newness of life. You've tasted it now. But there is a day coming when the newness of life will be undefiled by the presence of sin. He says, that's where you're headed. So greatly rejoice. Look what Jesus has done. But don't confuse the fact that he's done so many great and wonderful things that he might still say it's necessary you suffer. Why would he do that? Because he wants to bring these impurities to the top so that the Spirit can wipe them away so that what's left behind is a person more closely related to himself. And where intimacy is the goal, suffering will bring, at some point, joy. And here's his encouragement. Keep going because 2,000 years ago in a locked upper room when Thomas doubted, Jesus blessed you and he blessed me. By saying, blessed are those who will believe, though they never see. I was saying this was before, so this is not the snowstorm I'm referencing, but my wife and I live in Collierville, like right on the Collierville-Germantown line, and I don't know if, what it was like in Midtown or, or, or East Memphis, or, or you know, I met a, a lady from Bartlett earlier this morning, what it was like where y'all live, but there was, you know, about a month ago, there were these real strong wind gusts that came through, especially where we were, like, like crazy wind gusts out of nowhere. Uh, and this massive limb got blown off this gigantic, beautiful tree in our backyard. And I noticed watching that wind, the tree kind of swaying, the limb crashing to the ground, and I thought, I will be able to use that in a sermon one day. And today is the day. All right, so that wind is howling, howling, and the tree especially at the top, is going like this. And branches come crashing to the ground. But then I noticed something. The further I went down the tree, the less it moved. In Midtown, the bedrock of our lives, the foundation, the roots of our lives are the person and work of Jesus Christ. The closer we live in intimacy with the root, the less we sway. And some limbs in our life will come crashing to the ground. 
But you know what? The tree didn't fall. And so whatever comes our way, if we are closely related to the root, the less we will move and the more we will endure. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful that through the grace of Christ you have saved us, not of something we could do on our own, but by the work of your Son. And if we just respond in repentance and faith, you say what Peter says to us. We are born to a living hope. I pray someone tastes that today. Newness of life. Exhaustion with themselves. Exhaustion with the world. And drinking of the living water that by grace through faith is made available. God, for those of us whom you have redeemed according to your mercy... When we face difficulty and the multicolored trials that will come our way, I pray that you would show us the impurities, that you'd sweep them away by the Spirit, and we would be left behind more godly and more Christ-like. That the closer we go to the root, the less the wind will blow us around. And we pray and ask this in Christ's wonderful name. Amen. Amen. Would you guys please stand with us?